Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Avago Maradian. Joining us today for an exit interview is one of the most knowledgeable national security minds in Congress, who has focused on improving the nation's cybersecurity for many years. He is weeks away from retiring after more than two decades in the House. Rhode Island Democrat Jim Langevin, the chairman of the Armed Services Subcommittee on Intelligence, Emerging Threats, and Capabilities. He also sits on the Homeland Security Subcommittee on Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Protection. He was also one of four lawmakers on the landmark Cyberspace Solarium Commission, co-chaired by Maine Independent Senator Angus King and Wisconsin Republican Representative Mike Gallagher. Sir, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you on. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Before we get started, our daily coverage is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and along with Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum were sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. You have been uh, one of the voices that has called for better cyber defenses for a long time. And thanks to the Cyber Solarium Commission, it's driven some of the greatest improvements in cybersecurity in American history. Uh, You've been fighting this fight for a long time. How do you grade the progress? And are we doing enough fast enough to protect what's critically important, given you sit both on armed services as well as homeland security? Well, thanks for the question. Again, thanks for having me on the program. Obviously, uh, we, we've we've come a long way uh, from when I first started this journey uh, in cyber, uh, kind of down the rabbit hole, if you will, and and still figure out how far it goes. Uh, but uh, we we have made great progress from where I first started. And I, I have to say, uh, in in large part, the, the two things that that have uh, changed since I first uh, began this is that there's much broader awareness uh, of the cybersecurity challenges that we face. Uh, you know, part of that is because of the work of, of people in the cyber field uh, elevating, you know, the, the, uh, the issue and, and talking about it's important, the challenges to our security. But unfortunately, the other bigger part of it is the, uh, the, the just massive number of cyber intrusions and attacks that have, that have taken place. Uh, but the, um, uh, and that's obviously people getting hit with, you know, ransomware or personal identifiable information being stolen. So it's made it real tangible, very real for, for even the average person to, to understand and get cybersecurity is an issue. So that's on the, on the one side of the awareness side. The other thing that changed and where we've, we've come such a long way is because of the work of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission and then the subsequent support of adopting those recommendations, the 80 some recommendations that the commission re, uh, reduced uh, the Congress uh, Passing uh, many of those uh, those those recommendations into into law, so I would say that you know we we made quite a bit of progress uh, on the issue over my career, um, and uh, you know just looking at it when I first was elected, there certainly wasn't a uh, uh, even the mention of the word cyber right. in the National Defense Authorization Act. It wasn't a combatant command dedicated to cyberspace operations, nor a subsequent uh, or, or a subcommittee for, for cyber or even the mention again the word cyber again the NDAA so 22 years later uh, I serve as the, the chairman of the subcommittee on cyber innovative technologies and information systems uh, in my most recent four years as chairman of the subcommittee uh, we put more than 220 provisions of cyber centric legislation into law 
and that number will be closer to 300 when uh, the NDAA is signed into law by, by President Biden. It's been extraordinary. We now have a national cyber director in the form of Chris uh, Inglis. Uh, and I do have a question on, uh, you know, whether or not we can ever get to the nirvana of consolidating uh, these committees, something uh, that you and I have discussed uh, before. Uh, but in terms of next steps, Mark Montgomery, uh, uh, one of the senior advisor, but formerly the executive director of the Solarium Commission, always joins us in terms of the what's left uh, to be done. And one of the important issues that comes up is a closer public-private partnerships. Uh, what does better public-private partnership look like, uh, sir? Not just in cyber, but the kind of civil military, uh, right, civil high-tech military integration, for example, that the Chinese are doing, that there is an acknowledgement that we have to do better uh, if we're gonna better deter Beijing. Yeah, so good question. And you know, I, I think at the heart of uh, effective public-private partnerships here is a, a mutual sense of obligation to protect the nation whether that be from physical or digital threats. Uh, it also requires mutual recognition of what both sides of that partnership can do to support their overarching goal. So you know, a, a quick example on cyber, uh, public-private partnerships is essential to national cyber defense because uh, the private sector owns and operates the majority of our critical infrastructure. And so those owners and operates are ultimately responsible for the security of the infrastructure under their control, and they uh, they need to take those those responsibilities uh, seriously. But where the government can be an effective partner is in helping uh, those private sector com uh, companies to maximize their defensive capabilities, and that's why uh, I I push so hard for the creation of the joint collaborative environment uh, for the past several years. Um, having you know, having a, having a single platform. Uh, that government and private sector stakeholders could use to analyze threat indicators and malware together in real time, I believe we create that, that common uh, situation awareness that a, uh, that a mature uh, uh, public-private partnership requires. Um, but you, know, you, you asked about how public-private partnerships support uh, the technological advancements of our military. You know, I've, um, uh, you know, I've, I've been a staunch supporter of uh, robust government investment into emerging technologies with uh, the, the national security implications, but but I also recognize that the government cannot do it alone. So, uh, you know, early this year, I, I traveled to Silicon Valley. Uh, the innovation I saw firsthand uh, distinctly emphasized my belief that public-private partnership is, is absolutely critical to the development uh, of, of high-tech uh, military integration. And, you know, the, the, the private sector, I believe, is leading and so in, in, in many of these areas, and really it's up to uh, those of us in, in government to, to figure out how to support and then leverage that, that critical innovation. So, uh, you know, just in you know, kind of wrapping up, I'd say, you know, uh, of course, innovation and investment is only half of the battle. Uh, we also need to be able to effectively deliver the new um, innovative technologies that we're developing to the warfighter. And, and government has to be a reliable partner uh, to the private sector in that regard uh, as well. And that, of course, requires us to break down bureaucratic barriers uh, to procurements to uh, to ensure that uh, we're able to, to turn the, the, the vision of those uh, technologies that represent into, uh, into reality. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more uh, in t uh, about uh, deterrence uh, and the speed with which we're moving to deter uh, China in a moment. But uh, the war in Ukraine is an important um, um, 
almost a university for lessons learned in modern uh, conflict and, and combat, and also an object lesson on what happens if you don't deter uh, a, a crisis uh, from happening, because it becomes, you know, as expensive as deterrence is, uh, it's a lot cheaper than uh, actually having to unfortunately fight a war. From your standpoint, uh, sitting on all the bodies that you sit on, what are, what are the most applicable lessons that we're learning that are most applicable in turn to deterring China or better preparing for it, cyber or otherwise, looking at yeah. it broadly from your standpoint? We have seen, obviously, modern warfare right now play out on the, on the battlefield uh, broadly. And, and uh, you know, often in real time on, on social media, as Ukrainian people fight to defend their homeland and the very uh, notion of democracy itself. So, you know, taking nothing away from the horrific human costs of the conflict, which has been uh, just heartbreaking. Um, I, I think that there are important lessons that we uh, can learn about modern warfare and uh, national security strategy. You know, conflict uh, taking place in all is taking place in all five domains of warfare, including cyber operations. And what we've seen is demonstrated the importance of an effective cybersecurity capability in modern conflict. I've often said we're never going to, again, see modern warfare without a cyber element to it uh, in a major way. And, you know, despite their best efforts, Russia has not achieved the decisive advantage in cyberspace uh, that they likely expected that they would. Uh, Ukraine deserves immense credit for its performance thus far. But I often say that, you know, General Nakasone and U.S. Cyber Command also performed vital work alongside our Ukrainian allies in hunt forward operations, which have supported Ukraine's success on the uh, on the battlefront, uh, working with allies and partners and hunt forward operations uh, to identify militias activity um, clearly helps them build up network defenses in peacetime uh, and in crisis, and it improves their capacity to defend uh, as, as adversaries escalate in, in the use of malicious cyber capabilities. You know, I, I kind of akin to it is akin to uh, uh, cyber command going in, they you know turn on the lights and you know they see that the, the the cockroaches scatter. You know they see where they've been and what they've been up to, and right. and uh, you know and then you know we can apply these you know same insights to defend our own networks and deny our adversaries the benefits of of hacking our, our networks. So that helps to to blunt cybersecurity capabilities of uh, of that our adversaries might use to pursue expansionist or revisionist fantasies uh, and, and, and allow us really to intervene as quickly and, and as effectively as possible. It really, it makes us safer. So I, I'd say, you know, more broadly, you know, Russia's weakness in, in coordinating and planning a war in close attention, uh, but rest assured, China is is taking note too. And it's difficult to speculate uh, if and when exactly China moved towards armed conflict in, with Taiwan. But, you know, China is currently scaling up its military capabilities and they are also cultivating economic power and political influence across the developing world. But uh, on the cyber front, you know, we, there are lessons learned here. Uh, hunt forward operations are important, working with partners and allies. That's something that we have, right? We have partners and allies. Russia really doesn't, not, not to the degree we have. And same thing with China. So working with partners and allies is a force multiplier in a major way. And it goes to that, 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 that ties in nicely with the, the cyber front as well. Uh, more is being done in uh, China, uh, and it's you know if if you're one of those voices, you uh, count yourself uh, among them who's long been warning about China's rise and the threats it posed 
uh, poses that goes way beyond just military. You know, you just mentioned economic, diplomatic. Indeed, China is even uh, trying to advance its interest on a global cultural uh, front uh, as well, including by shaping movies that have come out of Hollywood uh, for uh, strategic advantage. Um, the concern is, the, the good news is we seem to be moving, but it's still, for some, still sluggish and not as fully integrated uh, as, it, as it needs to be. Um, are we moving fast enough, sir, and are we doing the right things to deter China in the broad? Again, looking at Ukraine as a lesson, you know, it's great to focus on warfighting and warfighting capabilities, but investing to deter is actually as expensive as it is cheaper than having to fight a war. Are we doing enough fast enough and what more do we need to be doing and how? Well, the, the, one of the best things that, that we can do is, is helping uh, Taiwan, for example, to, uh, to defend itself. And uh, you know, we, are, if, we hope it does not come to armed conflict. But the more that, that, that Taiwan can stand, especially in those you know, first two or three weeks of, of uh, open conflict, uh, the more likelihood uh, that there can be an effective uh, effort to push back against China's uh, uh, military aggression. We're hoping that it doesn't ever come to that, but having you know, the, a, a, the strong defensive capabilities is actually a, a, a good, you know, I guess, uh, strong offensive strategy as well. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, the question of other emerging threats that we should be paying attention to, but we're not. Um, you oversee that uh, part of the portfolio as well. We've talked about the acute threat of Russia and the pacing threat uh, of uh, China. But what are the other emerging threats that you think uh, we should be paying attention to that we're not? Yep. Well, good point. And, and so obviously it's important to keep in mind that you know China and Russia uh, are not the only nation state adversaries that are a threat to the United States and the West, uh, other global actors such as North Korea and Iran uh, also uh, present serious threats. And their development of weapons and their erratic behaviors, uh, you know, as do non-state criminal, uh, uh, cyber criminal uh, groups uh, that perpetrated high profile cyber attacks against the, the U.S. critical infrastructure are also of concern. So we need to look at the emerging threats of the future looking particularly at how uh, the development of new technologies will impact the gray zone uh, conflicts of the future. And you know, that's part of the reason why I've, I've spent so much of my time in Congress thinking about innovation and, and what it means to outcompete our strategic competitors. Uh, this is particularly important when it comes to, to basic science and research and development and uh, test and evaluation. And it really does span the gamut from, uh, from hypersonics to semiconductors to, um, to to cybersecurity, but you know, not not only must we prioritize these technologies, but we also need the infrastructure in place to do so. And we we have a, we have to stay ahead of the curve of our our adversaries' uh, work on emerging technology uh, uh, will will uh, overcome our, our own. So uh, there's there's no shortages of of challenges. But I guess another the area the areas that I would worry about most of uh, Iran and, and North Korea. Especially, we have a nuclear arm, North Korea, but also these uh, cyber criminal groups, the uh, ransomware groups that you know could potentially attack a whole sector of the country's electric grid and live us in the uh, in the uh, in the cold for for quite some time. If the if a ransom were you know were ever an issue and, and, and were not paid, or we couldn't overcome it by reconstituting our ability to get up and running again. 
Um, one of the things you've uh, mentioned a couple of times is uh, sort of the uh, driving innovation, your visit to Silicon Valley. You were one of the folks who were trying to push uh, for an acceleration uh, and uh, was an ally of Ash Carter's when he launched the DIU uh, Defense Innovation Unit Initiative and all of the innovation initiatives that have been going on. But there's also a concern that some of this has devolved into sort of performative innovation theater. Um, the system itself, which is necessary to the acquisition system broadly, which is needed to bring these capabilities aboard in scale, is, is still, in the eyes of many, not moving quickly enough to do this. You've thought long and hard about this problem. What else do we need to be doing? It's not an authority thing. It's more of a leadership thing. We want to focus on risk reduction. We don't want to get uh, beat up by Chairman Langevin uh, when when they come to testify in front of you, right? So, uh, you know, I mean, the story always went, we don't want to be beat up by John McCain. Uh, so we wanted to dot every I and cross every T. What are all the other things that have to happen? And what do members of Congress need to be doing differently, sir? If we're going to set the right climate to quickly take that brilliant idea, and actually operationalize it at scale when when we need it, which is something maybe China might be a little bit better at than we are at this point. Right, and I guess that's the 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 thing that worries me is that in a controlled economy, China can they you know I, I wonder can they move with greater agility uh, than we can because of if we have a cumbersome uh, uh, you know acquisitions process, for example. Uh, that takes years to you know get through the check the box uh, you know mentality uh, of, of getting new technologies in hand. Well, but that's that's a great concern to me. So the big thing is look uh, is getting these small innovative companies uh, the ability to, to do business with the Pentagon uh, make that make that easier. So DIU has been very helpful in that respect. But getting these companies these innovations that they bring to the waterfront of potentially. Getting that across the valley of death is the, the big thing. So continued investment, of course, in lab infrastructure uh, is important, but, but also encouraging uh, research. And, uh, and it basically, you know, I guess uh, putting in place the, the uh, failing forward or smart failure and job, adopting that, that philosophy is, is also important. You know, I've tried to instill that, and I knew uh, Secretary... Uh, Heidi Shu has uh, has has tried to instill that culture uh, change in in the R and D ecosystem. That you know it's it's okay to fail. Let's learn from my failures. Smart failure is important. Uh, we think some of our our greatest innovators uh, they failed plenty of times uh, before they succeeded. We want to instill that 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 culture within the, the Pentagon and our R and D ecosystem. Uh, but then again, working with companies, make sure there's access to capital. And uh, and that these you know amazing technology leap ahead uh, inventions that could be make the world fight that much more effective that it doesn't die because of the valley of death that we get to get a, these companies across that 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 uh, that valley of death. Um, I want to ask you um, sort of a broader strategic question before going back uh, to uh, cyber. Um, the, the good news is we're revitalizing all three legs uh, of the nuclear triad, the bomber, the submarine, and the ICBM, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. The bad news appears to be that we may have been or are very close or have forgotten uh, how to make nuclear weapons. Um, this is sort of the more you sort of study it, the more alarming it becomes. And it's astonishing to me that it's actually not a bigger discussion, especially for the nation that invented the nuclear uh, uh, device, 
in an increasingly nuclear uh, age. What's it going to take to revive that capability in an increasingly nuclear age? Because the weapon part of it actually gets caught up in non-proliferation discussions and we don't need as many nuclear weapons. But the issue is the last nuclear bomb we made was made three decades ago and the people who are making them were not allowed to write anything down. And so we're in a bit of a pickle right now. Um, how much focus does this have at a member's level and what's it gonna take for us to regain these skills somehow? Yeah. Well, you, you, you touch on a very important point, but a sensitive topic, of course. And uh, yeah, there has been this aversion uh, of doing uh, research in the, you know, in the nuclear field because the, you know, from the U.S. perspective, I think we have certainly placed a, a premium on um, nuclear disarmament, rightly so. Uh, you know, if we can uh, get to a, a, a world where we are have much smaller numbers of nuclear weapons. It reduces the potential of an accident uh, or having to rely on, you know, mutual assured destruction to to keep us uh, safe, which would wipe everybody out uh, if, God forbid, there were ever a nuclear exchange. But, um, you know, our nuclear triad is a, is a critical component of our national security infrastructure. As other countries continue to invest heavily in the development of their arsenals, certainly they're not sitting still, they are moving ahead. We, we really do have to continue to modernize and outmatch outmatch their efforts. And you're right, you know we're you know we're 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 on the right track if we can focus on on modernization. No no discussion of our nuclear triad because it's complete without acknowledging our, our nation's submarines. Uh, and we have to sustain our dominance undersea by keeping uh, our world class Columbia class program on a tight schedule while staying on track. Uh, to procure two uh, Virginia-class submarines each year. And that incredible work is being done in, in my district. I'm very proud uh, uh, that to represent the uh, electric boat in the last 22 years that I've sat in the House Armed Services Committee. And, um, you know, but you're right. You know, we, we have to uh, work to bolster and support the research and development and, uh, and, and ensure that the proper funding and personnel are in place to continue this revitalization um, maintain that knowledge base uh, and the ability to improve. And, um, you know, Congress has to make sure that we're, we're continuing to provide the, the proper funding to ensure that these efforts are sustained. Um, speaking of uh, proper funding, uh, one of the administration's key drives and one of the uh, solarium uh, recommendations and indeed everybody in the ecosystem was this software and hardware bills of origin and materials uh, yeah. initiative that's going on military-wide to determine to the extent to which our software and hardware could be compromised, whether there are Chinese components or uh, Chinese code or Russian code uh, that are in our systems. The, the problem is that the revelation may actually be a remarkably expensive one, right? Once we understand that, it may cost a lot of money to remediate. Uh, although some people have said that the, you know, this is in the billions of dollars. Others have said, actually, it's, it's probably a lot bigger and a lot more expensive. Do we have our arms around how much this is going to cost, sir? And whether Congress has the appetite to actually spend the additional money and where it would get that additional money, even though we have a tendency of borrowing. <laughs> we, have yeah. a, we have a big bank yeah. that we have a tendency of borrowing from. Well, let me say this. I, I give a lot of credit to the Biden administration and the various executive orders in cyber they've put out, including the, the SBOM, the, uh, the, the Software Bill of Materials. So you know, you know what's in the in the in this computer code and, and 
where we might be vulnerable. Um, but you know, it, ensuring the security of our weapon systems is clearly a major strategic imperative for the department. And it's not what, one which we can, which can be achieved overnight, but it is one that benefits uh, from the, uh, the transparency that software and hardware bills and materials can offer. And understanding you know, where and, and how our, our weapon systems are vulnerable is a necessary first step to protecting those systems. And uh, it, it also would, would provide the information we need to, to uh, appropriately measure the cost of the upgrades and replacements that we might need to make for security purposes. So having that kind of empirical analysis to uh, support budgetary requests that will help fund these activities will make it more likely, in my view, for those requests to get appropriate uh, funding through the, uh, the appropriations process. But this is going to be an ongoing effort, and we, we, can't, uh, we can't just ignore it. I'm very glad that they've uh, moved uh, on that initiative, uh, and I hope that it gets resourced uh, as, as uh, robustly as it should, uh, should be. I just have a couple more questions, sir, I want to ask. And, and one of them is, and I neglected to ask it, what has to be next on the cyber agenda, right? I mean, now, you know, you noted at uh, the top of the program that there are 300 initiatives by the time uh, President Biden signs the NDAA that will be uh, in motion. Extraordinary, especially given uh, that this was done just in a handful of years. What's next on the agenda? What are the other big issues we have to tackle? And does, for example, congressional reform, you know, you were one of the advocates for, uh, hey, let's, let's consolidate the number of committees uh, that uh, touch uh, cyber. What do our cyber priorities need to be, both congressionally but also nationally, going forward? Yeah. So on on the congressional side, I would very much like to see at, at some point a, uh, a a select committee uh, on cyber, both in the House and the Senate, similar to the way that we achieved intelligence reform and oversight of the intelligence community uh, years ago, we created the, the House and, and uh, Senate. Uh, from select committees uh, there. Cyber is such a broad issue. It, it really uh, is important that we have that, uh, that kind of a structure in place to do proper oversight. Uh, and you know, I, I do remain convinced of the utility of a, a permanent select committee on, on cybersecurity in the House and Senate. Congressional jurisdiction over uh, cybersecurity matters right now is fractured across several committees. Uh, it, it remains our, our biggest hurdle effectively legislating and overseeing the executive branch's efforts in this space. Um, you know, having a, a committee dedicated to cybersecurity matters would, would alleviate this issue. And, you know, we've done, as I pointed out, the same thing with the intelligence committees. Uh, you know, of course, um, uh, the intelligence committees also have cyber within their, in their, within their remit as to the armed services committees. And I think it would be, it would be sensible for those committees to retain uh, that jurisdiction, we sum that jurisdiction if there were ever to be a, you know, a standalone cyber committee. Unfortunately, the whole discussion remains a hypothetical for now as, as uh, this would be extremely hard to do in practice. And I, I, I you know, foresee jurisdictional battles, unfortunately, on, on cyber in Congress continually until an incident or some catalyst event occurs, which is serious enough to create the, you know, the, the political impetus required for uh, such a, a, a big structural shakeup. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, I've often said there's um, three elements to making good public policy, and that's uh, you have to have a problem, a solution, and a window of opportunity. Uh, you know, those three things don't often align uh, easily or quickly, but when they do, you've got to be ready to push it across the finish line. So I, I hope we can do that at, 
at some point. Uh, uh, but there's, go ahead. No, 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 go on, go on, I'm sorry. I was going to say, you know, th there's still things that are left to, you know, undone. Uh, I I'd like to see us uh, pass the joint collaborative environment. I, I talked about that earlier. Unfortunately, it didn't get uh, through this Congress. Uh, uh, but, you know, that joint collaborative environment would create that, you know, that common operating picture, the tool set for sharing information and doing analysis in real time between the government and particularly the intelligence community and private sector critical infrastructure to those entities that are mature enough to do something with the information. Uh, so we've got to get that across the finish line. I also want to see us uh, create a Bureau of Cyber Statistics to, uh, to collect data, do this you know, an anonymized analysis of, of data. I think that's something that's really uh, important as well. And, you know, there's a number of other provisions, but those are the, those are some of the big ones. Thankfully, uh, you know, Jen Easterly has done a great job over at uh, CISA and creating uh, JCDC, and that has the, of course, the giant joint cyber planning office within it. And I envisioned that the joint collaborative environment would be a part of JCDC, uh, but um, you know, it, it's a it's a work in progress, and and I uh, I'm sure it will happen eventually. Uh, hope springs uh, eternal. Uh, I know uh, you've been very generous with your time. Two uh, brief uh, uh, questions. One is about sort of what's next uh, and what you're uh, going to be doing next. But I want to ask you, you know, you came into Congress in one of the last classes where at least there was some semblance of uh, bipartisanship, uh, especially on national security, even though things were getting a little bit scratchy then. Then 9-11 happened and we saw a unity that we hadn't seen for a long time, but at least, hey, you guys could pass budgets uh, way back then. Uh, whereas over the past 15 years, we've seen sort of a devolution into almost complete madness, uh, or certainly over the past dozen or so uh, years. Um, what does it say? What's the key to getting things done? Uh, and what are the changes? Because it seems to me the more members I talk to are, are not just irritated with the other party, but they're often irritated at their own leadership, right? And so, you know, going back to your earlier answer, it would seem as though the conditions are actually aligning for more normalcy going forward, ideally, rather than more dysfunction. But from your standpoint, you know, what's the key to bipartisanship and what's the revolution we need to see on both sides? Uh, without trying to make any equivalency arguments here for the madness that's existed on one side or the other, what what what's the spirit that we need yeah. in order to do the big national things we need at a time when the United States faces competition? Um, you know, not just from the likes of China, but actually worldwide. Well, we'll say that that common sense of purpose always unites us, right? And you alluded to it. You know, right after nine eleven, uh, you know, you saw the country come together. We do that better than anybody in times of crisis. It's just, you'd, we'd like to think that we could do this, you know, in other times and not just in times of crisis. But, um, you know, I, I believe that common sense of purpose does unite us, bonds us together. And if we can focus on those things, we're going to keep America strong that, and, and keep us ahead of the bad guys that will, that will, uh, those that wish us harm, that'll help again unite and to move us forward. I will also say, though, that. Um, it, it takes individuals willing to reach across the aisle and wanting to find that common ground. I, I pride myself on thriving in a highly collaborative environment, and I've always been able to find a bipartisan partner to work with. I have wonderful relationships with so many of my Republican colleagues, and whether we're collaborating on national security issues or on cybersecurity uh, or on career and technical education or disabilities issues, I've always been able to find uh, a Republican partner to work with. So. I think there's, 
you know, it, it doesn't get the headlines, but there's a lot of agreement. And I'm still an optimist that, you know, that we can find that common ground. We, we may not agree on everything and there's still going to be disagreements and the political and fighting and such. But I think that, you know, when members, they want to get together, we can find that common ground. Um, even if the leadership can't do it, by the way, I think you get, you know, that's where the, because the media focus a lot of attention is on, you know, the, 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 the arm wrestling that goes back and forth between the, at the top and the leadership, but on on the member level, there's a lot of agreement when it comes to especially national security issues and trying to to work together. Um, so th- those are the things that you know again, we're going to have to continue to focus on and look for those those opportunities. But it, it is it is still possible to get the big things done. Uh, but you really it, it it only happens you know when you work in a bipartisan way. And, and I'll close by saying this that you know the fact that. Uh, the Congress right now, the House is so closely divided that the Republicans, there was not this big Republican wave. It was kind of a more re- Republican ripple, ripple that, uh, that, 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 uh, that have in this last uh, election, that um, maybe that's an opportunity for bipartisanship because they, you know, no one party has a, a big majority on, and, and will be able to impose its will per se easily. It's gonna be about a negotiation and hopefully working across the aisle to uh, to govern that's that's my hope so we'll see uh, if it happens i uh from your mouth to god's ears as they say sir right i mean but it was positive you guys added 45 billion dollars to the administration's request and there looks like there's more appetite uh to do more of that right so i mean at least on spending there was some agreement uh that's right you know again when it comes to providing for our, our men and women in uniform working out for the war fighters just the way that they look out for us keeping them safe and effective we always want to focus on ensuring that we are never sending our warfighters into a fair fight. We want to make sure they have every advantage. That's the, the mission I undertook when I, as chairman of the Cyber Innovative Technologies and Information Systems Subcommittee, or, you know, it, it had different iterations. It used to be the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee, but it was right. always focused on those cutting edge technologies that gave our warfighter the, the, the advantage. And, and, uh, and that's where, you know, my hope is that we can continue to focus on those things that, that keep us first and keep us safe. And, uh, reflections and what's next as you end uh, 22 years in Congress? Well, in terms of work to be done or what I'll be doing next? What you'll be doing next. Ah, so uh, right now I'm, I'm still. But if you want to reflect on what Congress has to do, I'm more than happy to entertain that too, sir. Well, we talked about the joint collaborative environment and the Bureau of Cyber Statistics. There's there's still a number of other recommendations that still haven't been enacted uh, uh, from the Salarian Commission. So I'll be hopefully pushing those from the outside now. And I'll be uh, trying to talk to colleagues that, uh, that have interest in cyber and wanting to work with them to, to make those things happen. For me though, uh, initially, um, I wanna take some time to uh, decompress and, and, and then explore uh, what will be next in the, in the private sector. But initially I will be a senior fellow at, at Brown University at the Watson Institute. And I'm looking forward to doing a little bit of teaching and uh, holding office hours, mentoring students and that's uh, that's a win-win as far as i'm concerned being able to uh, talk to these incredibly bright young people that will be the you know the, the next generation of leaders so that's what will start and then i'm sure i'll be doing some uh, consulting and and some other things in the in the private sector i will definitely stay active in cyber that's that's for sure though i've developed all this expertise over the years and uh where i can bring my you know uh, that uh, that knowledge and experience I, I hope to be able to make a difference in in other ways now
But well, it's sir, been a you, privilege to serve. Indeed, and it's been uh, a treat uh, covering you all these years. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. And you always have an open uh, chair here uh, at the Defense and Aerospace Report to talk about cyber or anything else that's on your mind from uh, the perch of such an august uh, educational uh, institution in the great state of Rhode Island. Well, that's very, that's very kind. It's been great to be with you and to have uh, these kinds of in-depth discussions. Thanks for what you're doing to help uh, educate the broader public uh, with this with this podcast. Thank you. Glad to be a part of it.